a Podcast One production. The better your culture, the better your performance. I think it's the fundamental difference between a great organisation and a not-so-great organisation. And, and I would argue that average talent in a brilliant culture will outperform brilliant talent in an average culture. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, as well as 11 of the top ASX-listed companies. And this is Fast Track. Culture is currently at the centre of almost every discussion in organisations and teams. What culture do we want? How do we create it? Who has a good one? How do you get it? There are discussions about how culture can crash quickly when the hype is exposed, and there are millions of dollars that are spent by organisations trying to get it right. Teams I work with ask me, what's the culture for us? Do we need one if we have values? And there's so much to talk about when we talk about culture. So let's set the record straight and talk about how to create an amazing culture without the cringe factor. To help me do that with pragmatism and style is Laura Aldington, CEO of Host of Us. Laura, Host of Us is one of the world's biggest advertising agencies and one of the big five in here in Australia. So what's your experience of culture, both for your organisation, but also for your clients? I think one of the things that, about culture that I'm most interested in is that I think it is one of the most misunderstood or misused words in my business. And I think that for a long time, I was also guilty of thinking that culture was something that was quite soft. And it was about, you know, fun Fridays and drinks in the bar. And, and what I've learned, in, in particularly in the last couple of years, is that culture is actually quite a hard-edged competitive advantage. Okay, let me unpack that a little bit with you if I can. The idea of soft versus hard-edged strategy. Yeah. So when you say soft, what were you thinking? What was your experience as a younger CEO? I think that people think about culture, and I certainly did, as almost a way of defining how fun a place is to work, and particularly in my industry, which is a young industry. But actually, what I've learned over time is that it's anything but about that. In fact, those aren't the things that I would argue drive culture. In so the pool table, the yoga mat. Yeah, and it's not to say those things aren't great to have, but they aren't the things that define a company's culture. And actually, when you can copy almost anything else about an organisation, the one thing that you can't copy is their culture because it's the one thing that is unique to them. And if it's built right, it's the thing that makes your team stand out from everybody else. It's what creates an environment which they can outperform everybody else. This is a really important thing that you've said. You can copy everything except the culture. So that means somebody can turn up as a competitor, but your competitive advantage is the culture. But what makes it hard-edged if it's just about how we feel about each other? Perhaps hard-edged isn't the right word, but I think that it is the single most important thing that a leader brings to a business. And as a result of that, I don't believe it's something that's built from the ground up or something that your fun club can take care of for you. I think culture is an environment in which your team can outperform. Lots of organisations have the culture club and the fun club and they put the most junior people yeah. on that. So what's your thoughts about that? I think that the culture is driven by management. The okay. behaviour of management is what drives the culture of an organisation. And so whilst I'm not saying those things are wrong and that it's not wrong to have fun and to have great things in your business, I think that when you're talking about building culture, it's much more than that. 
So how do you build culture where you are? What have you learned? I mean, the first stage is to define the culture that you want to have. And I think that that can either be the most important thing you do or it can be a huge waste of post-it notes because I think that what often happens in organisations is that when they're trying to define the culture, they're coming up with words that people don't disagree with, but they're not necessarily things that will fundamentally change the behaviour of people in the organisation. Um, and actually, there's a great book that I read um, called No Bullshit Leadership. It's by a guy called Chris Hurst. He's the global CEO of Havas. And in it, he talks about the fact that there is a, there's a Maitland study that was done in 2015. It was the top 100 companies and 30% of them had the same values I think respect, integrity and innovation belong to 30% of the companies within that group. And that seemed amazing to me that your biggest competitive advantage is one that you share with almost a third of all other companies that you're competing with. So I think that the definition of the words is one part of it. But for me, that's the smallest part of it. And really, the most important thing is the behaviours that you want to see emanate from those values. And I think, you know, to decide if a value has merit or not, you have to think about whether it's going to make people behave differently. And the reason I think values like integrity are so easy is because nobody can really disagree with them. And they don't necessarily force you in your daily interactions with people to think about your behavior that much. Like very few people say, I don't have integrity or I don't believe in having integrity. And actually, when you look at a lot of organizations that have had scandals, like Cricket Australia, for example, their stated value at the time was integrity. So I think there's a huge gap often between what companies say their values are and what behaviours they see in those organisations. So there's a fair bit that goes wrong there. And in my experience, I would totally agree with you. And I see organisations spend, as I said, millions of dollars and a lot of time getting the five words of their values right and then putting them on. In the old days, they used to put them on a mouse pad or they'd put them up and spend a lot of money creating that But actually to live the values and feel like it's a great place to work, there's a big disconnect. Absolutely. And I think that's where cynicism comes from. It's the gap between what you say you're about as an organisation and what you do. And I read something quite interesting that Brene Brown said in their experience, less than 10% of companies spend time actually operationalising their values. And in a funny sort of way, I think having the values but not living them is almost worse than not having them at all. Can you tell me why? Why your thoughts are? It rings true to me, but yeah. Because I think that's ultimately where cynicism comes from. There's no point in saying that you're about something if every behaviour that people encounter in that business doesn't reinforce that. I think what's so exhausting about it for leaders is that there is no zero-sum game. Everything you do or say as a leader either reinforces or undermines the value that you are stating is important to you. And so you have to think really hard about if you're going to have a value, how does that really show up for people in everything that you do and everything that you say or do as a leader of a business has to then reinforce that. There's a lot of pressure on a leader. It's a lot of, it's a lot of pressure and it, it, it forces you to really look at your own behaviour in the context of the culture that you want to create and change your behaviours as a result of it. And the famous example is Warren Buffett who always travels at the back of the aeroplane because he meets more interesting people back there mm-hmm. but also because he expects everybody else to travel in what they call an America coach. not in first class or business class. So that would him be demonstrating the values of the organisation, but it doesn't happen very often here. But of course, the Royal Commission was something Mm. about a lot of financial services institutions not living the values that they had on their wall or had written on a mouse pad or wherever it might be. So this is a tough, this is a tough gig to Mm. keep hold of the, be a leader, 
make the business high-performing and build the culture that's effective. What's the motivating force about culture then? Like, why would we spend all that effort on it? Is there a commercial reason? Yeah. I mean, I think what you said then about the company being high-performing and building culture, I think one drives the other. Okay. So I think that you're, the better your culture, the better your performance. And that's why, that's why I don't think it's something that can be delegated or left to someone else to deal with because I think it's the fundamental difference between a great organisation and a not-so-great organisation. And, and I would argue that average talent in a brilliant culture will outperform brilliant talent in an average culture. Have you got any sort of thoughts for us or examples about how we make that come alive? Yeah, I mean, I heard, I read something in, in Chris's book that I thought was a very helpful analogy, certainly for me, when I was changing the culture of a business. Um, and he calls it smashing the concrete. So he talks about the fact that your culture, when, it's, when it first forms, is quite malleable, but over time it becomes very set. And if you want to change it, you can't do little things around the edges. You have to have to smash the concrete, is his analogy. So that is looking at everything that you do as a business, from the onboarding to the way you review people to the way you reward people and assessing it through the lens of that culture, the seating plan, what you, what you have on the walls. The seating plan sounds trivial in some people's mind, something that we shouldn't be paying attention to. Why is that important, that environmental piece? I think it's a physical manifestation of the culture that you want to create. And I think that if you look around people's offices, um, you can often see things about their culture in the way that their physical space shows up. Now, I'd argue that's changed slightly in the COVID context. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, does the seating plan have hierarchy built into it? Where are the good seats? Who gets them? Why do they get them? All of those things factor into people's understanding of how you get things done in a, in a place. And that's ultimately, you know, what culture is. So you're saying culture is how we get things done together and as a whole in a business. Have you got um, any examples from your personal experience about how you've had to smash the concrete and get stuff done? Yeah, so I oversaw a merger three years ago. So Host and Havas were two separate agencies. They came together and both had good cultures, actually. But when you bring two cultures together, you realise the extent to which culture is so deeply embedded in everything about a business and it was, both a, it was both challenging, but it was a massive opportunity to really understand culture, what drives it, where it comes from, how it shows up. And so we had to look at absolutely everything that these companies were doing individually. And when you bring them together, look at what are the things that are going to really define the company that we want to be moving forward. And it required, you know, over time, it's required us to relook at our job specs, our onboarding process, how we interview people, how we review people's performance, how we reward people. Where do we meet? When do we meet? How often do we meet? What do we talk about? And a really interesting example for me um, around culture was we have a, a really important value around diversity and the idea that we want people to have a very flexible work-life balanced, you know, and one of the things that we realized that we were doing every week was we were shouting people out for working late. And we realized that what that was doing was reinforcing a perception that what we value is people putting in long hours when actually what we really value is people taking pride in their work and being relentless in the pursuit of doing something well. And we had to change the language around how we did that because we realized that we were misdirecting people around how you get things done around here. How did you find out? Because it's a dissonance. Did someone call out and say, hey, this doesn't make sense? I'm really lucky that I have a very good HR director who will observe a lot of the things that we do and say and give us good advice on that. But we also 
We do survey our staff four times a year and it's an anonymous survey. So I think people feel like they can be honest and we're really transparent with the results of that. So we will show everybody Mm. the scores from that survey. And I think over time it's built trust that if you bring something up in that environment that it will create change. So you examined everything in the merger, but I'm going to be a little bit controversial here and say that's the easy bit. Right, living it and sustaining it in my mind and not getting off track is the hard bit. Yeah. Once it, all the sexy stuff's done. Yeah. And it requires you to be so vigilant about everything that your team are doing and saying, everything you're doing and saying, and you have to constantly spend time evaluating your behaviours in that context. And I think one of the other things that is really uncomfortable about it is it sometimes means removing people from the business that don't live up to your cultural expectations. And I think that's a mistake that people often make is they will look at performance over culture and you'll hear them say things like, yeah, they're, they're really good. I mean, they're not quite right for us culturally, but they're very good at their job and they perform well. But I'd argue that if you're taking your, if you really believe that culture is something that determines your success and you have people, senior people in particular that aren't living those cultural values, you're sending a message to your entire organization that they don't really matter. Because you're prepared to overlook it when someone doesn't live up to them, even if they're good at their job. The standards you walk past are the standards you accept. Yeah. So one of the parts about onboarding, because I I often go into organisations or a team and the new person arrives and they've done all the recruitment and they've done all of the surveys and the assessments and the new person arrives and they sit down and, you know, a month, two months goes on and then we realise there's not a cultural fit here. Yeah. What sort of assessments do you go through to try and make sure that doesn't happen for you? Yeah, do you have a, I mean, a special way to do that? Again, it's something that I um, have been guilty of in the past, which is just assuming that people will understand the culture without you being explicit about it. I had this great anecdote about how when you take your kid to preschool for the first day and, you know, they're so unruly and undisciplined at home and then you take them into this environment where a bell rings and these kids all line up and your kid does it as well because somehow they've absorbed that that's what happens around here. And I think it's the same with culture. I think if you've got it really well established within your organisation, it is much easier to onboard people, but we still have a lot of things in place to make sure that people really understand that. So we have a handbook when people join. We have a session with people when they arrive to talk about behaviours. It's part of our job specifications because quite often they're quite functional, those job specs, and we try and add an extra section that really talks to what are the behaviours that we mm. expect to see? Mm. I think one of the things that's really important is that you're very clear about your culture because I think it's quite unfair if people come in and you haven't been clear about the behaviours you expect and then after two months you start to say, oh, I don't know if you're a really good cultural fit. And often they're left wondering, well, how was I meant to know? Mm. And the other thing that we um, we talk about is having tangible signifiers of the culture. Oh, that's an interesting <laughs> sentence. <laughs> yeah. So, I, th- I mean, I think there's a lot in companies around folklore and storytelling and how you create stories around culture. Mm. So I've got an example, which is um, we have a thing around relentlessness, like wanting people to just really hang in there when the going gets tough and be really sort of um, committed to the pursuit of brilliance and that that can be really hard work. And so we have uh, something called the Golden Toenail, which is an award. And the reason it's the Golden Toenail is because we have someone quite senior in our business who runs a lot of marathons. And he <laughs> ran one once and his toenail came loose. And it was in the summer, so he was walking around barefoot a lot because it was hurting. And it hung on, it clung on for way longer than it should have done. 
And so we had that, that became a story in the agency. We then had that sort of, we had something 3D printed and it's called the golden toenail and we give it out to someone every week to reward them for extolling that value. But in doing that, it gives us the opportunity to tell the stories about the behaviours that we want to see replicated in the business. And what did you call it at the beginning? The signifiers. And and they're like symbols Mm. and as we know in culture, as the definition in sociology about, you know, the way things are done around here is really around beliefs and symbols and the stories that we tell. So the golden toenail, that's fantastic. And so these are really solid symbols for people that bring them in an inclusion as well. And you reinforce them on a weekly basis through storytelling. So we meet every week on a Friday. It's a chance to reflect on the week that's just gone, but it's also a chance to reinforce those values and those Mm. behaviours. What about feedback? You mentioned that, you know, you've got a great HR person who tells you things, but is the whole business then as part of the culture to create that culture and keep it sustained about feedback as well when we're off track? Yeah, I feel like that's huge if you're going to build a successful culture. I think it's one of the main things. And I think that often in organisations, I'm not sure if this is, uh, this has certainly been my experience, is that feedback is almost seen as a bad thing. Like if you're getting feedback, it's because you've done something wrong. And I think feedback needs to be seen as a much more positive part of everyday interactions, which is both helping reinforce good things and helping people work through things that are less good. I think feedback can sometimes be misconstrued as, as a difficult conversation. And I actually think if it's had little and often, it shouldn't it should never be a difficult conversation. It should be something that's just embedded into the culture of the business. Mm. So yes, we do have formal moments of feedback, but I feel like if someone's hearing something in that environment and it's the first time they've heard it, then they have been somewhat failed during the course of that year. And mm. and I think that people should be have a lot of awareness about how they're doing and what they're doing well and less well on an ongoing basis. Someone said to me the other day, can you create a culture when you're not in the office? How are you going with that yeah. at the moment? Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's been a really interesting, I think it's been a radical, interesting experiment into culture because it's actually stripped everybody of everything that might have been the things they perceive to be driving their culture. Like no one's having Friday sushi get togethers and, and that kind of stuff. So I think it's harder, but I don't think it's impossible by any stretch of the imagination. The only reason I think it's easier in person is because you have more informal interactions and a physical space in which you can bring things to life for people. Um, But I think it's going to be a really interesting experiment over time to see how it does impact culture. Because I think initially, as everybody went into lockdown, there was almost an adrenaline around that experience for everybody and everybody felt very bonded and there was a novelty to working in a completely different way. And I think what was fascinating for us was watching how people's experience of that changed over time. So I think initially it was a novelty. It was very exciting for everyone to be at home. Suddenly people felt like they could use their commute to do something different. And and we found that people started to really miss the office actually a few months in because people just work in different ways. And some people are more extrovert in the way that they work, which means they need the energy of people around them. And I think we found some things about it really good. I think our communication really improved because it forced us to formalise the way that we communicated way more. Mm. So I did a daily call with the whole company Um, every single day through lockdown as a way of keeping everybody up to date. And actually that's ended up um, remaining as something that we're doing ongoing. I think that that those conversations around feedback are maybe slightly harder to do when you're all working remotely because it puts more pressure on those conversations and you can't, they can't be had sort of in the cab on the way back from a meeting or, Mm. or more casually, but it will be interesting to see what happens in another six months from now when 
the world's moved on again and... We don't have a crystal ball, so yeah. it'll be really interesting to see where we go. Absolutely. Somebody said to me that everything's changed, but nothing's changed. Yeah. And so the nothing's changed is the principles are still the same, that culture has to be actually seen as a competitive advantage and the teamwork that goes towards that, super important. Even more so, perhaps. Yeah, and just the different channels now, we have to pay attention to the discipline, like your communication, Mm. more effectively. I think it's also been a good leveller in a funny sort of way, though, like there is no hierarchy when everybody's on a Zoom call working from their homes. And I think there's been something about the ability for people to engage on a more human level with each other, that's been quite interesting. Yeah, about yeah. That experience. And the increase in authenticity and, exactly. uh, you know, whether our puppy is biting our toenails during a call or wh- whatever it might be. child has just appeared <laughs> from stage left, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting breaking down some of those barriers. Laura, whose responsibilities culture? You said it earlier as a management, but is it just management? I really think that culture is the responsibility of the leaders of the business to set it and to live up to it. And of course, it then becomes the responsibility of the entire company to to reinforce it. But I really think that it's not something that's built from the ground up. It's something that has to be led from the top down. Mm. We don't teach leaders about culture, really, do we? We talk about it, but we don't really teach them the how and the why and the what of culture. I think perhaps it's because it's seen as something that is a nice to have not something that is core to the success of a business. So if any advice you've got for any leaders out there who are listening to this, it's been really interesting to hear you say things like everything can be copied but a culture. And I think that's a really wonderful line to remember. But what advice do you have for leaders out there who are embarking on a journey of thinking about culture? I think my advice would be to take it really seriously. The most useful definition I've heard of culture is again, from Chris's book, is creating an environment in which your team can outperform your competition. And I think when you add that seriousness to it, if you like, it becomes something that you have to take a lot more seriously and you have to spend a decent proportion of your time really dedicated to making sure that you're getting it right. Mm. And it's not something that runs in parallel to being a good organisation. It is the thing that drives good organisations. And high performance. And high performance. Yeah. Yeah. Laura, it's so lovely to have had this short period of time with you and hear some of the anecdotes and stories that you've um, allowed to share with us. But I think what you've done mostly is actually up the ante a bit in terms of thinking about culture as a critical strategic component for any business and that it's a discipline and that it's hard work. The daily practice. (laughs) (laughs) The daily practice, as you know, and that it's worth it. Mm. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the free Podcast One Australia app or search Fast Track Podcast.